This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome board folks. Dr. Charles Parker here one more time, and we have another very interesting guest with us today, a person talking about the trauma of an abusive relationship, but this wasn't just an average abusive relationship. This was a beyond average abusive relationship with power, money, intrigue. We're not going to get into all the details because the real thing for all of us here, my friends, is how did she get out of it? Joanne Brennan, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time and we look forward to hearing your story. Thank you, Chuck. All right, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about Joanne real quickly. She originally, she was adopted in Canada, raised in an elite boarding school, good family, did very well, and she had a great childhood. That's the bottom line. And she had a strong sense of self-confidence and good decisions. And what happened to her, folks, is she made a sing singular bad decision in that she became emotionally involved with a very provocative and interesting person from a unnamed Caribbean island where that individual had ties with very significant power, in fact, involved with controlling the entire island. So that's why we're not going to mention what it is. And so bottom line, what she ultimately came to discover was that she was in a significant criminal network that she didn't anticipate that she would ever be in in her life because she was, get this straight, not raised that way. And so then our story, our interview here is not only how she got out of it, but what she's doing to help others get out of that kind of relationship. So let me tell you a couple of quick words from our sponsors and we'll get started. At Core Brain Journal, it is sponsored by, as you know, Direct Health Access Laboratories with over 3 million studies. They're deep leaders of experience with the big picture of measuring, for example, methylation, cryptopyrrole, and copper challenges. They provide a global service for the kind of work that we think is the future of psychiatry, which is neurophysiology and molecular neurophysiology reported in a way that any patient can understand it. So stay tuned and head over to dhalab.com forward slash core for more specific info. And Core Brain Journal is also sponsored by the nonprofit Barry Robinson Center in Norfolk, Virginia, who provide child and adolescent residential care on an evolved family, interpersonal, and global level as well. They're TRICARE friendly. And what they do is they have a very comprehensive way of doing an evaluation. It's not a treatment's based on, hey, we're going to just give you some structure and give you some meds. It's how do we put the whole package together, the family, the child, and they do advanced biomedical testing. They look very carefully at what's going on of every single piece of complexity that could cause that person to be a treatment failure and require more evolved residential care. So stay tuned, folks. You'll hear more about them in just a minute. And what you really want to do is take a moment to go over to barryrobinson.org forward slash core for more information. Any moment you get a chance, it's B-A-R-R-Y robinson.org forward slash core. So let's go on, Joanne, and talk about this. Tell us 
a little more really about how you began to discover and what happened when you started facing the harsh reality that you did. Were you in the island down there or were you up here in Canada? Where were you when you began, the light began to dawn on you? The light began to dawn on me when I was there. As soon as I became aware that the family was involved in uh, criminal activities and quite notorious, I normalized the situation. I was in denial. I was a minority down there. And I, in abusive relationships, which I have found, as I mentioned, you tend to normalize things in an effort to protect yourself. But really what you're doing is hurting yourself. And so when I was down there, I was going through this battle of who I was brought up to be and what I was accepting in an effort to please other people. So I started that healing of the the mind or callousing my mind slowly, still in denial, but going through the process of of realizing that this is not who I am, and there is one unique individual me in this world, and I do not have to, to accept or subject myself to that kind of uh, relationship. So then did he actually abuse you physically, or did you just feel more and more danger because of the criminal activity of the family? And the did he try to control you, keep you in the house? Did he? Uh, how did all that take place? Yes, there was financial control. I was raped. Also, there was uh, control in terms of weaponry. There was control emotionally. Well, stop right there. When you say control with weaponry, did he have a gun on you? You mean, or what? When you say that, what do you mean? With him specifically, no, but he did in terms of dealing with the family and their. So it wasn't just him that was doing the abuse. It was also within the family where there were items thrown and in relation to weapons, the fact that they were in criminal activity, I was subjected to raids and shootouts. So in terms of him specifically, yes, he physically beat me on a regular basis. And I by the time I left the island with passport in my hand, I had 17 bruises and abrasions on the body map that they did here in Kingston, and I had several broken ribs. So then, did you have children at the time? Not at that time, no. So then, did you? what happened? Did you then leave? Were you able to get out of the country? Yes. My parents wired me a ticket back to Canada, and as I mentioned, I had my passport in my hand. Then about three months later, we decided to try again, quote unquote, as many abused women do go back. But we decided to move to Florida. So we lived in Florida for a little over two years, and the abuse started to happen again. So that that cyclical event where there's the honeymoon phase and then the anger coming out and then the beating and the emotional abuse, the financial abuse. I was controlled by my mileage on the car. I was controlled on what I could and couldn't do. I was basically owned. Mm -hmm. He felt like he owned me. Mm -hmm. And that is a very terrible feeling to have. So I left again from Florida. I had a daughter at that point, And then I left. And three months later, he showed up in Canada. I had established a life for myself in Canada and near my parents, bought a home 
and was working, functioning very well, actually, and uh, seeking therapy. I went through 12 years of interpersonal therapy, and I have an amazing team at Providence Continuing Care. And I fell back one more time, pray to the control, because I was confusing what I was in for love. It wasn't love. It was a lust. It was a desire. It was a void, a loneliness. And that's a very sick place to be in because there's no relationship whatsoever that can flourish when it's like that. So I felt pray again. I made the choice to go back the third time. And that was when I was actually raped here in Canada. Well, did he rape you or did somebody else rape you? He did. Oh, he did. So that you weren't, were you married at the time? Had you already achieved a, a divorce? No, we were married. And then I started the process. Although the violence happened again, he was a promiscuous individual. And I shunned that away. I didn't want to accept that. And so you normalize these things. And then eventually the escalation started again. And there were pots and food. And if I didn't cook the food properly, he would throw the hot food at me, throw plants at me, planters, anything, anything at all for intimidation and physical control. So I called my doctor, my family doctor, because I was having bouts of uh, crying all the time. I was Mm non-functioning. And I remember, you know, I had all the massive traits of a clinical depression. And I called my family doctor. And the one thing he said to me was, why did it take you so long? And then he made all of the necessary phone calls. And then I was on my way to separation, divorce. I self-represented. I was actually at Queen's University studying psychology. I took a sabbatical to self-represent after being $30,000 in debt. Bought all the law books myself and uh, won. Won the custody of the children. He has no parental rights anymore. And I've moved on. Mm. (laughs) Moved on. Well, do you sometimes worry that he's going to come and find you? No, I don't actually have that fear. I don't think based on the position that he was left in in the end that he would attempt to do that. I have covered my grounds so very, very, very well in terms of the police, the RCMP, all of Border Patrol between the various countries involved. The kids are protected. So fear is not danger. And fear to me is something that is made up in your mind and is not actually real. And that's what I've learned because I've been exposed to danger. And I was fearful when I was in that relationship. But now, with the mindset that my team has helped me through my therapy to get to where I am, although me doing the work internally, I don't have that at all. Well, you know, we have a global audience, and I'm going to be one of those global audience attendees in this conversation because I've always had a big respect for the RCMP, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and... uh you know, the whole Dudley do-right thing. and But tell me this, I don't know what they do. I know that they're police, but what's their relationship with your local police? What is their, I mean, are they the FBI? What's, what, how do they work in Canada? The RCMP, well, all based on my experience, I am assuming that, that they 
I don't have concrete evidence uh, specifically to answer that question. Mm -hmm. But what I do know from my experience is that I contacted them in an effort for them to put up what we call uh, red flags for the children to protect them. So within their database, as well as the local police, Mm -hmm. as well as Border Patrol, they have assisted me. And I would assume that maybe they are networked with the local police, but I, I really don't know. But from my experience, I know that the children are protected within the database in terms of red flags, as well as in the school system. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, you know, I have a lot of respect for them as individuals because they, they're so uh, interesting. And the way they, the whole situation, I mean, they're more of a national organization. And I would think that they'd have more purview than the local. Yeah, but I didn't yes. know. I just thought I'd ask you about it. Yes, I believe you You are correct on that. They, from in, in essence, uh, similar to what your FBI would be like. So then when he came back up, you said something very interesting to me offline as we were preparing our thoughts and getting to know each other a little bit regarding the stats on what happens with individuals, more frequently women, of course. The stats on individuals who the average return, your return was three times. Let's talk a little bit about that. So we go through the cycle of abuse where there's the honeymoon phase, the good phase, and then where the individual who feels is in power or entitled to ownership of you starts the abuse and the control. And Usually it's because they have low self-esteem, actually, Mm -hmm. and are not confident with themselves in who they are as an individual. And so, yes, I went back the three times and the average woman goes back seven times. And why do they do that? Because they're embarrassed. They don't want people to know what's happening. They're afraid that maybe there are not enough resources in society to help them. They're afraid of losing material items that even though they're being abused, they normalize the situation. At least that's what I did. I was driving Mercedes Benzes. I had, although I was given money, it was terribly, terribly controlled. So you have to weigh the pros and cons about what you are prepared to lose to gain your value and your worth back as an individual. So these materialistic things in life tend to freeze our feet or keep us frozen, hence the name of my book, How to Thaw Your Frozen Feet. Because in the end, you know, with all of these factors, people keep going back. And they need to understand, based on how I like to share, is that your worth and who you are is so much more important than any materialistic things. Well, that's where you lost it right there because that was part of it. And then the other part of it is there is a dimension of every individual, which is redeeming. It may be 10% uh, where he's contrite, whatever. And part of him is thinking, I I really am not handling this correctly, but on the other hand, he can't handle himself. Right. So then he's going to come back and, He's convinced himself that I really can manage this, but he really can't manage it because he can't deal with intimacy. He has no ability to trust. His self-esteem is so low, he's terribly insecure, and then he regresses markedly. Actually, it's a problem, and it's uh, kind of a paradox. We've seen it clinically often. Mm -hmm. The closer they get, the more they become regressive. 
Yeah. Because the more they care about you, the more they want you, the more they feel a sense of intimacy, the more possessive they become because that is the paradox in the whole situation. And of course, the victim individual like yourself feels a certain measure of being close because you can see that uh, vulnerability of the person as they feel more intimate with you, but that vulnerability is something that actually sets them off into a paroxysm of, I have to control her because I'll lose her, uh, something bad is going to happen, she's going to harm me because they themselves are dealing with PTSD from whatever and they have low self-esteem. So they're going to just do everything they can to control you because they're going to lose you because they care. Now, if they didn't care, then the whole thing could be over and you would be happy duck and you could move on down the road. This whole situation is, in fact, as you well know, loaded with paradoxes because it's their vulnerability that makes them irascible. And the denial of that vulnerability makes them worse than ever. Absolutely. And the denial is the biggest lie that we can tell ourselves. So there is no relationship whatsoever that I have learned unless two people come together as a whole individual separately and build a proper foundation. There is no hope for a relationship like that at all. And being in a relationship like that, what I have found is that as you were talking about the paradoxes, one thing came to light is that you feel like you're filling a void for them at the time that makes you feel complete, but it is a complete lie. Well, no, it is. Here's the thing. I'm going to take exception with you. You're right that the last piece of the sentence is the problem. You are filling a void for them, and that makes it attractive to you because you feel the pain that they have, and you can actually understand it on a deeper level. And you know on some level that they absolutely have to have you, which is an attractive thing for you because on that level is where your self-esteem is, is flagging. So instead yeah. of being realistic about this whole situation of how damaging it's going to be to you, you personally have a self-esteem problem that's drawn back because you think, oh my gosh, I really am doing some good and I am hurting this guy and I don't want to hurt somebody. And there's where the rubber meets the proverbial road right there, because both of you are then reverberating on a low self-esteem conundrum, and both of you are in denial about the underlying insecurities that you feel personally. Yes, I totally concur with you. Well, listen, I got another question for you. I'm going to ask you in just a minute. We're going to take a little break here, but uh, the question that I want to ask is the question that has to be on everybody's mind who's listened to us thus far. Because it's a totally reasonable next question. And that is, how does a person who has been kind of the top of the mountain with Mercedes, powerful family in a, an island in the Caribbean of all beautiful places, who comes back and really realizes the trouble, gets the divorce, works it out, does all the studies to make sure she gets the divorce. Here's the question I'm going to ask you. How do you build trust in that next relationship? How do you then take that lesson into what you're going to do next with your life. That is, I'm sure, the topic of your book, but let's have a few words about that so this can be productive for our listeners. Folks, we'll be back in just a moment. 
Well, you folks already know that here at Core Brain Journal, we're on a mission to introduce you to resources that make significant contributions to the investigation of those predictable mind science applications. Our colleagues at DHA Lab Group provide a real difference with treatment options for people at every level, from first awareness of mind problems to those frustrating times when even well-informed treatment becomes surprisingly unpredictable. For my entire professional life, from psychoanalysis to brain scans, I've searched for, yes, improved predictability. The good news for all of us, from professionals to patients, remarkably effective research offers useful, cost-effective, organic options far beyond guesswork with psychiatric medications alone. DHA lab tests measure unbalanced biomedical details through easily available testing, now available globally for a variety of molecular answers from, for example, methylation, copper, and cryptopyrrole challenges. Check in for more details at dhalab.com core. That's dhalab.com forward slash core. Well, welcome back, folks. Here we are at Core Brain Journal, and we're going to ask that question that we were, I mean, really interested in, and that is, you know, if you've been to the to the mountain and you've been harmed and you have had your self-esteem completely trampled in the dirt because you realized the limitations of your own awareness of yourself and your limitations of your awareness of other people, what are the steps that you take to lead a life and have a regular life with another person? How do you transform yourself from being your face in the dirt having been hit by the bus? The word transform, Chuck, is the word that comes that speaks to me so much. So building trust again. And in my book, we talk about initially uh, pinpointing whether the relationship is what type of abuse is going on, whether it's emotional, sexual, combination of the three, spiritual, and that, that sort. And then as we go through the guide, the healing process, that I went through, I realized that you have to overcome the love that may still linger or what you think is love. And with that, it's very, very normal for people to, you know, as we talked about, go back and hum and haw and lollygag a bit about about that. So we talk about what is not a healthy relationship and moving on for what is best for you. And then going through another very important stage. And all of this is leading up to becoming a wholesome, complete individual with your self-esteem, your worth, and your value. And so pulling through grief and intense sadness, as well as uh, depression, and then realizing that you're letting go of something or someone or both for that matter, that you had shared what you thought were hopes and dreams, is very overwhelming. So we talk about that and how to get over it. Emotional reactions, because there's anger involved, there's guilt, again, low self-esteem, all various shades of emotions that we go through, and hypervigilance, PTSD. So again, as you as one discerns calluses their mind and is open to receiving therapies for this, then you are building trust first within yourself because it wouldn't be prudent, in my opinion, to 
go into something until you feel wholeheartedly complete within yourself as an individual. So building that trust first through interpersonal therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, group therapy, psychiatry, psychologists. So we talk about that as well. And then coping with other individuals in your life, because not only has the trust been broken with yourself and the relationship that you were in, but many abused women keep the abuse a secrecy because they're embarrassed. And so rebuilding uh, relationships with family and friends, because not all are supportive in you leaving, not all believe what you have actually been through, not all want to hear. So we tap into that as well and how to overcome these things and how to re-engineer those relationships and practical considerations as well to look at children, finances, divorce, and then various uh, resources that tap into that as well and which professionals may be a good choice for you. Now, I was just going to further into the guide about, and again, keeping the focus on building trust within yourself first and then being open to another relationship is um, finding your sense of self again through reconnecting with various talents that you may have had that were put by the wayside because abused women and men that are abused for that matter tend to put themselves at the very bottom of the list. So it's very important in rebuilding your trust for yourself and then for another relationship to find your sense of self again, find those talents, those strengths, abilities and skills as well as realigning with your values and goals in life. Well, that is exactly where I was going to go with it right there, because I think Mm -hmm. the kind of things you're talking about are very, um, they're in a way what a person thinks they need to do. But I think what happens, the people I've seen and my experience with it is that is you really need to get more concrete with your own skill sets. So there's knowing yourself, but the way a person knows themselves is to watch themselves develop skill sets and they need to practice what those skill sets are as opposed to a larger picture where they're kind of lost in terms of what do I do? The real issue is self-management and self-management is setting boundaries and setting boundaries skillfully and respectfully practicing setting boundaries is a big deal. You were alluding to it and I'm just going to take what you said a little deeper because I think what happens if a person has this problem with a loved one where they're being abused and their self-esteem is on the line because they really shattered who they thought they were is not who they are, then to rebuild themselves, they have to manage every single relationship in an approved way. They can't manage it capriciously or without thinking. They have to be knowledgeable and say, this is me, this is how I am with this situation, in all these small situations that they previously abrogated, that they didn't really pay attention to and let it go. And what happens is the situation, I don't know you personally, but my experience and one of the things I wrote about in my first book, Deep Recovery, is people who are in trouble are either loved too much or not enough. So they're, you know, if they are loved too much or they feel that they're, you know, they have a certain measure of Uh, support and caring, and they haven't dealt with the world, they don't have the practice that it takes when the real world walks in their door. So the real world walked in your door after what sounds like a great childhood in that you didn't really develop the skill set with an excellent education. You had great education. You probably know the history of Rome very well, but in terms of managing relationships, you didn't get a skill set on that. And when it came up, you 
abrogated that whole thing to this guy. You said, okay, he's got a skill set at managing relationships. I don't. I'm going to hang out with him. It's going to be fine. And instead of saying to yourself, I really have to develop a skill set in management relationships, and it has to be true for everybody, certainly even more so if I'm going to be married to that person. And that would be a very a very key point. That would be a, a very key point that a person would then develop when they came back to the situation, which is why you know, I asked you that question. Because, And you said this several times in different ways. I'm just stating a little more emphatically. Yes. And I totally agree with you. Very much on point. So what happens then, a person, if they practice the skill sets and they say, no, I just don't want to go out tonight. Instead of saying, look, I love this guy. I want to get along. I'm going to go out even though I don't want to go out. Somewhere in there, they need to be with a person who's going to accept them saying, not tonight, Henry. I mean, it's just not going to work out for me because I just can't do it tonight. I hope you understand. Now, a good balanced relationship is people talk about who they really are, even in every small decision of when they're going to go to bed, what they're going to watch on television, who they're going to go out, whether they're going to go to that party or this party, whether they go to work at what time they go to work. All of those things are manifestations of the self. And a lot of times, a person who has not been loved enough, you were, you were on the side of being loved and supported a great deal. Yeah. But those who are not loved enough, they don't know either because they don't know what the values are from a point of view. Who does really care about me? I have no idea what caring is all about. So I'm just going to have to like stay away from this thing because I don't know who to trust and who not to trust. And that's either love too much or not enough. And then they get mixed up about it. So, yeah. And then there's another breakdown of a relationship eventually. Quite so. So you have in your book, tell us a little bit more about your book. So you have several points in the book. Please elaborate on those if you don't mind. Yes. So some of the other pinpoints that we cover are, um, yes, as I had mentioned, uh, resist returning to that relationship, even if you wish to return to the abuser, which as statistically speaking, as I mentioned, the, the average woman uh, goes back seven times. So we talk about how to do that in my guide. And then maintaining communications is vital. If you have children, unless the abuser ends up going to jail, or in my case, in court, he um, lost his parental rights. But maintaining communications, whether it be through a third party, remembering to document your materials and various aspects of that. And then being open to love again is a grand chapter. And it is not your cliche, get back there, start dating, find somebody to love you again. It is not that at all. Being open to love again in that chapter is about wholeheartedly learning to love yourself first. Becoming whole, becoming complete, and then potentially finding somebody else that way. Mm -hmm. So that is absolutely vital based on my experience because when two people are not whole and complete, know their value, their worth, have set boundaries, then there eventually there is a disrespect and a normalization of something that shouldn't actually be normalized. And so, yes, that chapter is talks about the truth, what love is versus what lust is or loneliness and loving yourself. And uh, 
and moving forward then. So you get more into the details. Well, we're running out of time here. I want to thank you so much for coming on board. Let's close with how people can get your book. We're going to have it in the show notes as well. It's going to be easy for a person to get a hold of. So let's talk about what, uh, where to go, where people can uh, connect with you, and where we go from here. Yes. So my website is howtothawyourfrozenfeetbook.com. My book will be out in April, the first two weeks of April. We should be in print. We will have eBooks. It will be on Amazon as well as in hard copy. You can also find me on Facebook at Thaw Your Frozen Feet and on LinkedIn under Joanne Brennan, J-O-H-A-N-N-E-B-R-E-N-N-A-N. Now, folks, you may not be able to hear it because I'm having a little trouble listening to it, but I've got the show notes. So it's Thaw, T-H-A-W, Thaw Your. So it's How to Thaw Your Frozen Feet book. So just so we can close with that. Thank you so much, Joanne, for coming on board. We really appreciate it. It's been helpful. It's, it's terrible to actually think about what you went through, but it sounds like you're on the path. You're in beautiful country up there, and it's a very helpful, useful message for all of our listeners. We thank you very much for coming on board. Thank you for having me, Chuck. It's been a pleasure, and I'm very grateful. So you have a great day. You too. Thanks for listening to Cobrain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because, as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive, misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications, like those written for ADHD, are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.